Good afternoon. My guest is T. Martin Bennett, father of five, an entrepreneur, a lover of history and true stories. He spent 18 years conducting research and refining the book Wounded Tiger and hopes to bring this remarkable story uh, to the, the big screen. Um, good to meet you, Martin. Thank you. Brian, thank you so much for having me on your show. Let, let's let's just start. I mean, this is a wild story, and it's 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 one of those stories that I don't I don't think people have any a clue about. So let's let's begin with uh, the commander, uh, the Japanese commander, um, it, Mitsuo Fushida. Is that the way it's pronounced? Yeah, it's close enough. Fushida, probably. Okay. Mitsuo Fushida is the way we say it in English. Who who was he? Well, he was a rising star in the Imperial Japanese Navy. Um, like his comrades, he was driven by national ambition and by selfish ambition. He wanted to be a superstar. And he did achieve that as far as he could go in the Imperial Japanese Navy, being handpicked by Admiral Yamamoto to ultimately lead the attack on Pearl Harbor, which began the Pacific War for the United States. Now, how did you get access to his story? Well, I love history. I love true stories. And uh, I, I, have, I purchased biographies, and I, I got a hold of a book that, from uh, a defunct publisher, an out-of-print book on his life. And I really had very low expectations because <laughs> I know quite a bit of World War II history. I know a lot of redemption stories as a believer. Sure. I never heard anything about this guy's life, and so I had low expectations, like I said. But as I started to go through the material, uh, I started to realize this This looks like it could be one of the most phenomenal unheard stories of the entire, of all of World War II. Mm. And uh, I I just was, I was just amazed by the story. The, the more I researched, the better it got. And I really had a very specific vision to see this as a feature film. So I spent about three years researching his story. And of course, the story of Wounded Tiger involves not just him. It also involves an American prison, excuse me, an American uh, bombardier who was in the U.S. Air Force, so to speak, bombed Japan about six months after the Pearl Harbor attack, but his plane ran out of fuel. He became a prisoner of war, and he was in, in solitary confinement, tortured, uh, just lived in hell on earth. Uh, but slowly, uh, the Lord started to speak to him. And then there's a the third plot line, which is the Covell family. They were highly educated teachers and missionaries who lived in Japan. They loved the Japanese people, but when Japan was starting to ramp up for war, they needed to get out, so they got a job speak, um, teaching at a school in the Philippines, and then they sent their children off to the United States. Meanwhile, the Japanese did attack Pearl Harbor, and they attacked the Philippines. And so that's the three plot lines that eventually come together in a way that's absolutely, I mean, it's mind-boggling. If it were not true, it would make a bad story because it's just too far out but it is true as they say truth is stranger than fiction Bryant. uh that's the way it is with this story and it has uh just a phenomenal ending as well i'm not saying this because i, I like the book which i do i'm saying if you go online and look up wounded tiger on amazon you'll see reviews saying things like this may have been the most extraordinary story i've ever read in my life yeah. i've had many reviews like that so the cool thing about it is if you are a believer it's it's phenomenally inspiring, but if you are a skeptic, it's incredibly intriguing. I've had many people who are not of faith at all read the book front to back, 
and want to converse with me about the story. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it has those two elements. Well, let's let's uh, let's uh, continue on with the characters. Uh, Commander Mitsuo Fujita uh, is we he is regarded as a hero in Japan. Does he uh, continue to fly through the war? Well, he, you know, yeah, he was a, a superstar superhero after directly after the Pearl Harbor attack because they never expected to, to experience such an incredible triumph because the Americans were asleep at the wheel. They were not prepared. Uh, they were not expecting anything like this to happen. So he became uh, a great star. But the uh, the Japanese strategy was a little bit um, unclear. They weren't really certain what their next targets were. And Fuchida was concerned that if they didn't come to a, a position of power over the Americans, the Americans would overwhelm the Japanese. And they only had a certain amount of time to do that. Yamamoto said the same thing. So the goal was to defeat the American Pacific Fleet in the Battle of Midway and then negotiate terms favorable to Japan, essentially allowing the Japanese to hang on to the uh, Western Pacific from Hawaii West and allow the Americans to take Hawaii and everything you know, back to the U.S. And the, and the continental U.S. So that's what they expected to happen. But, of course, it didn't happen that way. They, they lost the Battle of Midway. And it it just turned into one long series of defeats for the Japanese. The difficulty among the Japanese military was they had a code of ethics and standards, their own standard, that is, that you either fight and win for the emperor or you fight and die for the emperor. But one thing you do not do is surrender. You don't surrender under any circumstances. So they just made the war a long drag out a long series of battles, hoping to kill as many Americans as possible to make the Americans want to just throw their hands in there and say, listen, we're tired of all this bloodshed. Give the Japanese whatever they want. We just want to go home. But unfortunately for the Japanese, the first words out of uh, President Roosevelt's mouth after the Pearl Harbor attack was, we're demanding unconditional surrender. Right. So uh, these two things are diametrically opposed, and we know how it all ends. Um, Well, it ends, of course, with the dropping of the atom bomb, um, I'm just wondering if uh, uh, Mitsuo Fujito has anything to had anything to say about. Well, it, uh, yeah, he yeah. did. What's very very interesting about this story is not only was he the lead pilot in the attack on Pearl Harbor, he was uh, designated and selected to lead the Battle of Midway as well, and he was in Hiroshima. The day before they dropped the bomb, he was at a military conference. He receives a phone call. He needs to leave to go to another air base. And the next day, the city was bombed by the atomic bomb. His hotel was vaporized. 80,000, 90,000 people died within hours. Mm. And he comes back to Hiroshima the day after the bomb was dropped. He walks around in radioactive material for three days. And a month later, everyone on his search party, or nearly everyone, was dying of radiation sickness. And the hospital wanted to examine him. And so he goes to the hospital asking, what's this all about? And he sees that everyone is dying, but he was not dying at all. He didn't suffer any consequences from that. So his life was spared on multiple occasions that you'll see in the story that are true. And he had to start thinking, why am I still alive? He was not interested in the God of the the Americans, but when he came across what happened to Jake DeShazer and how he um, realized he had lived in hatred and wanted to live in love— and he comes across the story of the Covell's daughter, who does some unbelievable loving 
acts toward the Japanese people, he starts asking questions, and his biggest question was, where does this love come from? And that journey is what brought him ultimately to faith. And it is really quite fascinating to see a person who is arguably the most unlikely person in the Pacific War to embrace the God of the Americans or the God of, of, of you know, the God who is. Yes. And uh, how it all happens and transpires is absolutely mind-boggling. So tell us about uh, Jacob DeShazer. Jake came from uh, Oregon. His father was a farmer. He tried to make his way in the world, earning money in several jobs, and he couldn't earn money, and never, nothing really worked out, so he did what a lot of guys did in those days, and still today, he joined the Army signed up. Uh, then he uh, was trained in the U.S. Army Air Corps as a bombardier, the guy who sat in the nose of a twin-engine bomber, a B-25 uh, Mitchell bomber. And uh, then at, while he was training, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. And he, like every red-blooded American male, said, I'm going to go out there and I would just want to kill Japs. Send mm-hmm. me. I'm going to go kill Japs. That was his thing. Right. So he volunteered for a mission he knew nothing about, which was the Doolittle Raids. Some people might know that. And uh, what that was, was the significance the of the Doolittle Raids? The Doolittle Raid was a tactical raid on Japan just to demonstrate to the Japanese that they are going to have to pay for this, that they're not going to get away scot-free. Yeah. The difficulty for the Americans was all their resources were being directed to the European theater because it was massive. That war was going on. And as far as dealing with the Japanese, they said it's going to be a year or two before we can build up a navy capable to go out there and conquering the Japanese. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the president was adamant that he wanted to do something to let the Japanese know we are going to come for you, too. Yeah. So they put together this raid called the Doolittle Raiders, headed by a guy named Jimmy Doolittle. He was an MIT graduate and a stunt pilot in his earlier days, and was he was a brilliant airman. And he devised a way to launch um, light bombers off of an aircraft carrier on a one-way trip from the carrier over Japan, bomb Japan, and then fly into unoccupied China because we were allies with the Chinese at that point, and then land. That was the mission. But uh, things didn't go the way they planned. They had to launch much earlier. They did bomb Japan. So these 16 bombers all bombed, I think, three or four different cities. And it was just to show the Japanese people and the military, hey, we can get to you if we want to, and you're going to be on our radar soon enough, but right now we can't deal with it. Well, it was tremendously successful because the Japanese military and the emperor were really concerned about what had happened. Unfortunately for Jake DeShazer and many of the pilots, because they had to um, take off early, he ran out of fuel, and he had to bail out over-occupied China. And in the true story... Uh, they realized they're running out of fuel. He was not a believer, and he realized he's got to jump out into the black of the night through a hatch in the bottom of this plane in the rain, and a good chance he was going to die. And he said to himself, well, this is the way I've lived my life. I guess this is the way I'm going to die. He jumps through this hatch over China, and at the same moment across the Pacific Ocean, his mother wakes up, elbows her husband, and tells him, hey, I've got to pray for Jake. I feel like I'm falling through the air. So she gets on her knees and starts praying for her son, and her son did survive that, that, uh, that night. And even though many of his buddies were executed or died of exposure, he came back home alive, and it was partly due to his mother praying for him. So that was just one of the supernatural things that happens in this story that mm-hmm. just makes you wonder what is going on in the spiritual realm in our lives that we don't really know about. Yeah. Now, was he taken into, uh, what, did he become prisoner of war? 
Yeah, he was a prisoner of war, and he was a very valuable commodity because the Japanese wanted to use these prisoners to negotiate with the United States because the U.S. Accord wanted their prisoners back, and it was an international news what's going to happen to these Doolittle Raiders. Yeah. Uh, they, they said they were going to kill them all, but they ended up executing some of them, but they didn't say who, and they wouldn't allow the, uh, the Red Cross to come in there to take messages or to you know, notify family you, your son is alive or dead. They wouldn't allow that to take place. They didn't respect um, any of the international rules of law. They said, we do things the way we want to do it. Nobody tells us what to do. So mm-hmm. it was a real huge international thing. And for, the, for his family, they were very, very concerned about him. But the mother really got some words of knowledge of what was going on with her son more than once. And she tells her family he's going to come back when everybody thought she was a bit crazy. And I guess she was crazy because she was a woman of faith in a world that was not very believing at the time. Right. Well, we got about 60 seconds um, and then we'll take a break, but start with, tell us about Peggy Covell a little bit. Peggy was a, uh, a very simple person who lived her life uh, as a devout believer, but she was uh, a, she was more of an introverted person. And, and again, one of the most unlikely people you would think who would have an impact on the life of Kuchita, but simple acts done in love can have huge consequences on the world. Oh, Martin, hold it there. We'll take a break. We'll come back and pick it up and learn about Peggy and the Covell family. My guest Thanks, is Martin Bennett. The book, Wounded Tiger, the true story of the pilot who led the Pearl Harbor attack, whose life was changed by an American prisoner and by a girl he never met. I'm Al Creston. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. We are learning an extraordinary story. It's uh, told by T. Martin Bennett in the book Wounded Tiger, the true story of the pilot who led the Pearl Harbor attack, whose life was changed by an American prisoner and by a girl he never met. We've been talking about Mitsuo Fushida, one of the most notorious villains in American history. Uh, He was the one who led the Pearl Harbor attack. We've also been talking about uh, Jacob DeShazer. He was a member of the Doolittle Raid, who was captured by the Japanese after his B-25 bomber ran out of fuel over occupied China. And we were learning, as we closed out last segment, of Peggy Covell and her family. Uh, So let's pick that up and tell me a little more about Peggy and her family. Yeah, thanks so much, Al. Uh, So Peggy Covell was a very ordinary person and unassuming. No one would have ever predicted that she would have such an impact on the life of uh, Mitsuo Fuchida, especially herself. But what happened was she was hearing of terrible things happening to people in the Philippines where her parents were uh, stationed, and she wanted to do the most loving thing she could for the Japanese people here in the United States. So she lived in, uh, she had graduated school in upstate New York. She volunteered to go out to internment camps where uh, Japanese-American citizens were being you know, held, yeah. Uh, yeah. and that's very controversial how what went down there. Mm-hmm. But uh, she wanted to just do anything she could help with them. So while she was out in Colorado volunteering to help American uh, Japanese nationals, uh, the call went out from Utah where there was a military hospital that had prisoners of war who were 
uh, being taken care of by the U.S. There were Germans there and there were Japanese there. Because she spoke fluent Japanese and had a Red Cross certificate, uh, she was able to go to this hospital and she volunteered to help these Japanese men. Well, over time, uh, they were just so impressed with how loving and, and caring about them that she was. And they kept asking her, why are you here? You know, why are you doing this? And in Japanese culture, there's a very strong emphasis on obligation. When you're born, you have obligations to your parents, to your neighbors, to your family, to society, etc. And if somebody does something good for you, you're obligated to help them out. So they expected her to tell them some wonderful story about some wonderful thing that a Japanese person had done for her, and she's repaying the deed. But when they found out she was doing it because the Japanese were so horrible uh, to the Americans, they were they were just dumbfounded, mm. but they were highly impressed. So when one of these people ended up back in Japan or was returned as a prisoner of war after the war, he it turns out this man was Fuchida's engineer, the guy who worked on his aircraft, and Fuchida met him, and Fuchida asked him all these questions, and when he heard about the story of Peggy Covell, he was fascinated and confused. Why would you love your enemies? He said, you know, we kill our enemies. We we destroy our enemies. We don't love our enemies. Why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense to me. But he does say later on, and I, I include this in the story, that in his heart he felt that she was right to love her enemies, but he didn't really quite understand why. Mm-hmm. So he searched to find a Bible. He ended up getting a just a New Testament, and um, eventually he came around, and then he started telling his story, which was sent shockwaves in Japan of who is the, the guy who led the attack on Pearl Harbor is talking about the God of our enemies. Why would he do that? So the story is, uh, it, it is, it is an unbelievable story. Even, the book is 600 pages long, but it has over 300 photos, maps, letters, images of all kinds. And I've had multiple people tell me they read the entire book in a single sitting <laughs> because they just couldn't stop reading it. And if you look at the reviews on Amazon of Wounded Tiger, you'll see people said this is a page turner i couldn't stop reading it and one of the reviews says exactly what i just said the guy said once i started reading it i just could not stop till i finished the book you know it's like i think five or six hours later he just couldn't stop reading the book but uh, it's it's amazing to me that um fushida ends up making presentations uh from pearl harbor to calvary so he had a pretty deep conversion oh yeah he did but like most people, his journey was slow. It wasn't, it wasn't a lightning bolt. It was a slow and steady growing mm-hmm. light in his life. And you'll see in the story, I don't want to give things away here, but there's some surprise of like, wow, oh, man, this guy's got to deal with these things. So in, in the Christian life, it's kind of like coming into the promised land. Uh, you, the land belongs to you, but these cities have to be conquered one at a time. And there was a very big city in his life, which should not have been there which he had to take care of, and you'll see that in the story. But uh, he was absolutely genuine and authentic. I met a man who traveled with him. Uh, the man has since passed away, but he told me with tears in his eyes, he said that, you know, Fuchida was, had a, such a deep love for other people. It was just amazing. <laughs> and he was, you know, you mentioned he was a minister. He was actually was an evangelist. That was his calling. That was his gift. And if you go to YouTube, there's a, a video of him on the Merv Griffin show being interviewed. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting. I and he's very overt about his faith on the show as well. Yeah, I'll ha- I will take a look at that. Now, uh, Jacob DeShazer, how does he begin to fit into this storyline? With the well, as I mentioned, he wanted revenge against the Japanese, like most Americans did. Sure, but he was—he had the opportunity to carry out that revenge. His plane bombed a city in Japan. They, then they were flying to their base there to be, you know, to land the craft. But it was they had. 
They had launched early, so they ran out of fuel. He bails out. He gets captured by the Japanese. He and his men and many of the other Doolittle Raiders, the other Doolittle Raiders who got captured by the Japanese, are put in solitary confinement, go through mock trials. They had to sign papers admitting guilt that they'd done all kinds of crimes, which they didn't do, but the documents were written in Japanese. Um, they were, you know, they had horrible conditions where one of his buddies just died of exposure. And in his own words, Jake DeShazer said he was crazy with hatred toward the Japanese. He just wanted to kill them all. And then he realized, I don't want to be this kind of a person anymore. I don't want to be just filled with hatred. I don't want my life to be nothing but hatred. And that's what it was. And he remembered his mother. And this is just a, you know, it's a shout out to the, all the moms out there. You don't realize how powerful an influence you are in the family, mm-hmm. except when people really need you. And so he realized his mother was an example of love for God and forgiveness, kindness. And so he wanted to find out what it meant to be a Christian. And uh, they circulated some books in the prison. He got a copy of the Bible, and he just read it voraciously, but very skeptically. And finally he said, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and do what God says and see what happens. And and what happened was a number of supernatural things happened in his life, and they continue to happen. Of like, wow, this is absolutely amazing. And he thought, okay, this is the way I want to live. I'm going to love people. So after the war, he ends up a missionary in Japan. He spent uh, 20, 30 years just serving the Japanese people. Did he ever meet uh, Mitsuo Fushida? He did meet him after the war, and uh, there's a picture of the two of them in the book. Uh, they weren't like best friends, but they did speak, share the platform in Japan on num- a number of occasions <laughs> and telling this story. So here's the takeaway from this whole story, Al. You know, the world is full of war. It always has been full of war. There's war in the Middle East. Nobody has any solutions. Nobody right. has any solutions. But right. in Wounded Tiger, you see a demonstration of the solution. Here's one man who led the attack on Pearl Harbor who despised the Americans to the point that he thought it was the happiest day of his life to bomb Pearl Harbor. You have another guy who says he was crazy with hatred toward the Japanese, just wanted to kill Japanese. How did these two men become friends? Yeah. How does that happen? Yeah. And what can we learn from it? That's very good. That's, that's very good. Where is about? Um you know, do does does uh, does Jacob ever see uh, Peggy Covell? I don't believe that Jake Shazer ever saw Peggy Covell. Okay. You have to understand, she was a very private person before, during, and after the war, and Pachita yeah. never met her either. Oh, okay. Uh, he did reach out to her, but she never really. I mean, she was just a very private person. So um, the reason for that privacy is explained at the end of the book, and you'll you'll know why. But uh, no, he never talked to her. But uh, all that to say is simple acts done in love and kindness for others can have a monumental impact on the entire planet. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for Peggy's acts of reaching out and serving her enemies in the USA, we wouldn't be on the phone today, and her story wouldn't be out in, you know, 100,000 copies of this book. I mean, she... She just really did some amazing things. And, of course, you know, I think you mentioned at the beginning that we want to get the film made, and that's absolutely yes. front and center. I'm meeting with a potential investor next week. We want to get this film done because it's interesting, it's, a, it's, it's compelling, it's entertaining, it's dramatic, but it also can be life-changing, and that's what we want to see. Uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, I mean, getting the, the film made. It, I mean, it's a powerful story. And I think it would it would it really does read. Did you read the whole book? No, or some of the no, books? I did not read the whole book. But do you have a copy? Yes, I do. I do. Okay. 
Because um, I would send you one if you didn't. Yeah, no, I've got yeah, one okay, here. Keep going. It is, it's a cinematic story. When you it read, absolutely, you can tell it's absolutely is, yeah. And so I'm just wondering, uh, what kind of creative control can you maintain uh, when you, you know, meet with the studio guys? Yeah, so that's the $100, $125 million question. So <laughs> I've had three offers to fund this film. And they were all secular, and they all believed that the film would be commercially viable. But I had to decline that offer because if I sign the offer, that means I can't protect the integrity of the story. They can add, delete, change, whatever they want. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus Christ turns into higher power. There's a sex scene. All <laughs> kinds of crazy things can happen. Right. So uh, eventually, the producer of Hacksaw Ridge, one of the key producers of Hacksaw Ridge, yeah. called me up, asked what was going on with the film. We talked at great length. I met with him in person twice in L.A., he said, Martin, if you want to create a control of the film, get the book out far and wide, and then that's when the investors will come to you. If the money is on your side of the table, then you can partner with any studio you want. You can produce the film the way you want it, and you'll retain creative control. So that is what we're trying to do right now is bring the right investors into the project who get what this is about, love the story, and want to see the story as written on the page end up on the screen. And that can only happen if the money is on our side of the table. Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious, do you have any idea of how, say, things go well uh, and next week you have investors. Uh, how long does it take to take a story like this? Uh, well, I'd say a, the fastest. I mean, if, we, if, this fun, if this film was fully funded by the end of the month, I'd say two years would be the fastest. Three years is probably what it would take. Yeah. There's a lot of details in this story, and I think if you've read even, you know, three or four chapters, you'll know. Yeah. There's a lot of details here. It's also a period piece, which means everything has to be done, uh, you know, period correct. And, of course, there's a lot of big military set pieces, which means a lot of, you know, computer-generated information, CGI, visual effects and everything. All that has to be done. It will be an expensive film. It will take time. And we want it to be absolutely excellent, A to Z. It's not about getting it done quickly. It's about getting it done with excellence. Uh, let me ask you a question, uh, dealing with morality and ethics here. Did uh, Mitsuo Fushida ever express an opinion about the morality of the U.S. Uh, using the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and absolutely. Nagasaki? What did he, he say? Did. So I try not to have too many giveaways, but I, I will give this giveaway here. So what happened was he was in Hiroshima literally the day after the bomb was dropped to figure out exactly what kind of bomb it was and what the damage was and should we be afraid of more of these bombs being dropped, etc. He's on this uh, investigation party. Anyway, one Got of the guys said to Fujita, he said, "Why? how could the Americans use this bomb on us? And Fujita said, if we had the bomb, we, I would have been glad to use it on the Americans. Okay. Martin? That was his answer. This is war. Great making your acquaintance, and I hope we talk again. Thank you. Thank you, Al, so much.